This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this Friday afternoon. I'm Cassie Half. Now, coming up, the competition Watchdog has released a report into the country's container ports and found that stevedores are making excessive product, have been making excessive profits during the pandemic, and that has farmers concerned. As these critical assets have been privatised over time, there isn't sufficient regulation um, to actually make sure things like uh, port terminal charges uh, remain in check. And what we have seen is those charges have skyrocketed and that has a very material impact on the bottom line for growers on the ground. I'll have more on what's going on there. It's certainly been a concern for farmers for some time. But also, today is Friday. It's a week now, just about, a week and a couple of days, till Christmas. So I thought it might be nice to give away a present in the lead-up to say thank you to everyone for listening all year. It hasn't been an easy year for many people. I know many of you are facing an uncertain Christmas with floods and sky-high bills. So thought it'd be nice to say thank you with a small Christmas hamper as a giveaway. There's a couple of goodies in there from ABC Rural and it also includes two tickets to see Hairspray on Tuesday, December 27th at the Adelaide Festival Theatre as well. So uh, that's a bit exciting. It's not often I'm able to give away prizes. All you have to do is call in when I say Christmas in the next half hour or so and tell me how you are spending Christmas in the country this year. So not right now. But when I keep listening and if I say Christmas in the next, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, give me a call on 1300 222 That's 1300 222 Many shows do go on hiatus at this time of year, but not the country hour. We'll keep going every day except Christmas Day or in this year's case, the Christmas public holiday that falls on Boxing Day this year. And uh, so you'll be able to keep up with what's happening across South Australia. Uh, even when the cricket's on, you can listen on the stream as well. So uh, do keep listening to the country hour through this Christmas period and ring in when I say that magic word so that you can win a Christmas hamper featuring two tickets to see Hairspray on Tuesday the 27th of December. But in the meantime, as I was saying, it's nice to hear that uh, heading into Christmas that South Australian farmers are a confident bunch. In fact, off the back of some good uh, spring rains, confidence in South Australian farmers is the highest in the country, according to the latest Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey. Rabobank's regional manager for South Australia, Northwest Victoria, Roger Matthews, said farm incomes are also expected to increase despite the heavy input costs, he told Brooke Nindorf. Despite the rain being a pain at harvest, it has helped boost farmer confidence. No, well, the rain overall has been um, far more positive than negative. So we've had general rains right across uh, South Australia uh, well into late spring and well into November. And crops have been able to continue to get benefit from that. There may have been some damage on to um, some hay or those that uh, you know heavily reliant on hay, uh, but overall, the benefits of the rain across the state are far outweighed uh, any minor negatives we, have, we would have had. But if you look right across Australia, I, th- I think it's roughly 45%. Was 45% of uh, South Australian producers expected their incomes to increase? And that was quite substantially above the rest of the country. The others would have been sort of 20 to 25 
And what do you think that comes down to? Well, I think the the general rates, to be perfectly honest. Um, so um, the difference in seasons between, you know, if you like, Mallee's a great example, but you'd also say plenty of parts of the Air Peninsula uh, and the Mid-North, where we haven't had quite the finishing rains over the last few years. And this year, uh, harvest is looking like being second best on record, maybe even the best on record in South Australia. So uh, I think that's the key factor contributing to such confidence that farm incomes are going to rise in South Australia. And this is a, a turnaround from the, the, the last couple of surveys, I believe, because the confidence was sort of in a decline in, in South Australia. Yeah, so I think, so if we look back over the last couple of years, what we've had during spring, we've often had um, scattered or patchy rainfall during spring. The big difference this time is we've had prolonged general rainfall right across uh, spring. And spring is such a critical season for farmers in terms of setting up the entire year and finishing off uh, crops. So the fact that we had such a, a generous spring and, and considerable rainfall has really boosted confidence. And is this for livestock producers as well, those spring conditions? Yeah, so I'd actually say beef producers in, in particular were uh, quite confident, and that was right across the country. And probably what we saw in um, earlier in the year, we saw a, a decline in beef prices, and I think that was largely around disease concerns, whether it be um, foot and mouth disease or lumpy skin disease and the amount of press that that was getting um, just to the north of Australia. And then we saw a, a, a spike in prices uh, as well. And, of course, beef prices have come off um, late, as we've seen, you know, big volumes uh, coming onto the market, uh, which is typical for this, for this time of year. Uh, but beef producers are overall particularly confident. You mentioned there about the threat of uh, food and mouth disease. There were concerns last survey, but the, the most recent results, concerns have, have gone down to zero. Well, really interesting one, and I guess it was uh, really top of mind uh, back earlier in the year. And and whilst the threat hasn't uh, abated so much, uh, it's perhaps not as front of mind for people. So there there are still concerns uh, to to the north of us, uh, but it's just not as front of mind uh, as it was earlier in the year. Roger Matthews, uh, input costs haven't uh, lessened for for a lot of farmers, uh, you know, things like fuel and and fertiliser. What were the results from the survey when it comes to input costs? Yeah, so for a lot of producers, real concerns around input costs. And there's actually a really strong correlation between fertiliser costs and, and grain price, actually. So, so you typically see when there are very high grain prices that you also have uh, very high fertiliser price as well. And, and it makes sense because farmers will be using quite a bit more fertiliser to actually uh, make the hay, hay while the sun shines, so to speak, on um, on yield. So input prices are a concern and continue to be a concern and they have escalated quite a bit. But they've escalated quite a bit when we've also been getting very high commodity prices over recent years. With those high prices that are being seen and, and this confidence uh, um, going up in the last survey, what do you think that might mean for investment on, on farm? Well, actually in South Australia, it's a really interesting one. So a third of the producers, or just over a third of the producers that were surveyed, uh, are actually looking to expand their holdings. So that's a, that's a really significant uh, portion. So uh, you look across the last few years and we've had um, comparatively good seasons, certainly this season's very, very strong. And we've seen comparatively good uh, prices. So um, farm land values have increased uh, quite a bit. There's been a lot of demand for uh, increased land. And the most recent survey uh, indicates that uh, a third of those that are surveyed 
are looking to expand their holdings. So that, uh, that's a real boon for confidence. What could that mean for, uh, for South Australia and, and property prices? Well, I think the, uh, the, the real... So for South Australian property prices, I think we can expect them to continue to be um, um, pushed. You know, a, a demand for land is still substantial. Um, I don't know that we're going to see the rapid rise in prices that we had um, maybe over the last two years. So I think the depth of the market is perhaps not uh, quite as strong. So if you go back 12 months ago, you might have had uh, eight or 10 registered bidders at an auction. This time, there might be three or four. So the depth of the market is not quite as strong. But overall, I'd expect land prices to continue to hold firm or maybe increase slightly. Rabobank's regional manager for SA in northwest Victoria, Roger Matthews, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. It's good to hear that South Australian farmers are confident ahead of Christmas. That is the magic word. I want to hear what you're doing for Christmas this year, particularly in the country. You can call me on 1300 891. And the first caller who wants to tell me what they're doing for Christmas in the country this year will get a happy little Christmas surprise from me. It's coming up to 14 minutes past 12. South Africa, renowned for its beautiful scenery, wild animals and outstanding fielding side. And Australia, famous for its stunning beaches, red sandy deserts, tropical rainforests, aggressive batsmen and fierce fast bowlers. The cricket is set to go wild in December and January. Join ABC Sports coverage from Saturday. Australia and South Africa on ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the competition watchdog, the ACCC, has released a report into the nation's container ports and found that stevedores have been making excessive profits during the pandemic. Shipping lines have been charging what they have called unreasonable detention fees for storing containers. ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh told David Clawton that reforms are needed to improve services at container ports. It's been an unusual period, but we've certainly indicated the sorts of profits that are being recorded by stevedores at the moment would not be considered normal. They do seem to be excessive. Now, there is an element of recovery from a significant downturn in profits during the early stage of the pandemic and prior to that. So we'll certainly be watching that pretty closely in the next couple of years to see whether they return to more normal levels of profitability because they should if there's a competitive market there. If if not, then that raises some real questions about um, how that market for shipping and um, stevedoring services is working. Well, you've got a few key players there, Cube Holdings, DP World, the uh, Victoria International Container Terminal Group and Hutchison Port. So are any one of those, you know, making more profits or, 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 or stand out to you as a group that's maybe charging a bit too much? We don't reveal the, the, the close details of the information provided by the suppliers uh, of stevedoring services in Australia. I think uh, our indications are that the trend we've observed, that is the improved profitability over the last couple of years, is across the board, not just um, uh, a single port location. So, yeah, that's that's about as specific as we can get in our report, but it's certainly an area generally we're looking at pretty closely. Well, fees, costs for container trade went up from, I don't know if I don't recall what they were, but like $1,500 for a container to several thousand. And the shipping lines were also 
part of that equation, weren't they? You found unreasonable detention fees from shipping lines. Can you explain that? Well, the, the, the container movements in Australia are quite complicated because um, we don't export as much as we import. So there's a lot of container imports occur and the containers are actually owned by the shipping company and the freight owners have to put them back into areas close to the port so they're ready to ship back. And basically what happened was those container yards were full and the freight owners were still getting charged a detention fee because they didn't put them back into those yards. Now, you know, basically that's pretty unfair because they physically couldn't get them back into the yards and, and therefore were getting charged detention fees for not returning them on time, which is, is a real problem. We've highlighted that. The US have moved to regulate that and not allow those charges to occur in that situation. And we've certainly suggested there might be a look at regulation around that because uh, it, it certainly wasn't the freight owner's fault that they couldn't get those containers back in time. The other thing that's been plaguing the, the ports for some time now is union strike action. This, 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 the arguments obviously between the workers and the stevedores particularly. Did you have a look at that in your report? We did have a look at that and we certainly understand that uh, labour is the biggest single cost in the categories of costs incurred by um, stevedores and so it is quite important that um, labour use is efficient and, and not excessively costly. We don't have specific responsibility to look at that but we certainly are aware that disruptions impose very significant costs on both freight owners and shipping companies and therefore you know unreasonable disruptions are always going to add costs for farmers for any users of the port and that needs to be avoided if all at all possible. Mick Keogh from the ACCC speaking to David Caution. Well several of you caught the magic word we had a few callers in but Scott from Port Augusta is the winner he got in first good afternoon. How are you going? Um, well, thanks. Merry Christmas. Now, uh, I did want to hear a, a Christmas, uh, country Christmas story. You are the winner, but uh, have you got any exciting plans or perhaps you've got a tradition that you like to do at Christmas time? No, it's just tradition to do a water run, I think. I think most people on stations do a water run for Christmas, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> if there's water around, which uh, there is this year. Yeah, no, there's plenty of water. Thanks, one. Well, uh, you hang on the line. Merry Christmas and, um, yeah, the, uh, enjoy the show. Uh, that's probably the, the big ticket item in the hamper, but really this was just a little way of saying a small thank you to everyone who has listened into the program through the year. So Merry Christmas and you have a, a lovely Christmas, even though it sounds like it will be quite low-key this year. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Same to you. That was Scott from Port Augusta, the winner of the little Christmas hamper that I have to give away from us at the Country Hour to uh, you to say thank you for listening into the program all year. Now, we were just hearing uh, about the Competition Watchdogs report on the container ports. Now, grain growers are saying they're alarmed by the latest findings. One of the findings in the container stevedoring monitoring port is that the current level of regulation is not effective and the threat of regulation is not enough to constrain container ports from exercising their market power. Zachary Whale from Grain Growers told Michael Condon that the privatisation of ports has resulted in escalating costs and record profits for stevedores. 
as these critical assets have been privatised over time, there isn't sufficient regulation um, to actually make sure things like uh, port terminal charges uh, remain in check. And what we have seen is those charges have skyrocketed and that has a very material impact on the bottom line for growers on the ground. So that means that the companies that have come in, there may not be enough competition. Maybe the companies have got strangleholds on certain ports and they can basically charge what they like. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and often there's reasons put out there or, or purported as to why costs increase. Yet when you see profits posted, it does certainly uh, in the grower's mind raise the question of, you know, why those costs are actually increasing. Uh, and, and it's not about wanting any entity um, to not be able to make profit. We obviously want our memberships uh, to be profitable as well, but it's about what is fair and reasonable um, to enable exporters uh, to be able to get our product uh, into international markets at competitive prices. So when uh, people point the finger at uh, bulk handlers like Grain Corp and they have a $300 million profit and also they point the finger at Cargill and, uh, you know, billion-dollar profits there and Glencore billion-dollar grain trading crop profits there, that's the sort of – they're the sort of super profits that uh, stick in the craw for grain growers? Yeah, look, in the lead-up to the election and in pre-budget submissions and in a range of other forums – uh, grain growers has been calling for a thorough investigation into the deregulated supply chain. So, you know, the, the system has been functioning in a similar way for the for the last few years now. And it's certainly in the growers' mind um, when you see these profits posted, it, it calls into the growers' mind, is that value being shared equally from end to end? Um, and years like this, we've seen a real discrepancy between the physical prices uh, Australian farmers are receiving for their grain, you know, and, and the international pricing. Uh, and then we're seeing really large profits posted. So uh, we believe it's high time for a thorough investigation uh, into the supply chain end to end um, to make sure that that value is being fairly distributed. But they say that there are logistic costs, so there are uh, trading costs, there are container costs, those sorts of things because of COVID. Uh, you're not buying that. You're, or you think if they're posting those sort of profits that, you know, someone's making some money, uh, maybe it needs to be shared around a bit more to the growers look absolutely i think if if you see those profits uh being posted i think that that tells that tells the story itself you know and, and then also you know specifically back to ports you know i think it does come down to effective regulation there needs to be oversight there needs to be checks and balances there needs to be effective benchmarking um to make sure that we can actually see you know what performance looks like um, in those ports. And, and if, if, you know, fees are increasing but performance is incredibly high and that we can get things effectively in and out, um, that's one thing. Um, but at the moment, there isn't actually any mechanism to benchmark. There, there isn't a clear way to, to, to assess performance, yet the prices go up and up and up. And yet I thought the ACCC's report was saying that there was evidence of competition and an increase in the number of players in bulk exports out of ports. Uh, but you, you think maybe not enough? Oh, look, I think there's two, there's two separate issues. The, the ACCC released um, the, the bulk monitoring report, which, which indicated that there certainly is competition uh, in the bulk export space. Um, but in their containerised stevedoring monitoring report, you know, it, it flagged that there is insufficient competition um, in, in that side in that side of the equation. So I think we've got to draw the distinction that the bulk of our grains do get ex sorry, excuse the pun uh, the majority of our our grains do get exported through the bulk pathway, and there are lots of players in that. Uh, a smaller percentage get exported um, via containers, uh, and that's a much much tighter sector, and, and certainly needs more regulatory oversight. Zachary Whale from Grain Growers speaking with Michael Condon. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Western Forecaster John Fisher has the latest. Good afternoon. 
G'day, Cassie. So, looking across South Australia, it's starting to warm up, but there could be some weather on the way next week. What's happening? Yeah, sure. That's uh, that's exactly right. Uh, things are starting to, to warm up. Uh, still touch below average today across uh, the, the state, but uh, yeah, the, most of the cloud covers contracted back to uh, southern coastal areas, uh, but uh, north of that looking at temperatures generally in the, the mid to high 20s today, although yeah, some of those southern coastal parts where the cloud is uh, still looking at some, some cooler temperatures down uh, into the, the, the high teens or low 20s. Um, but yeah, pretty much dry across the, the state today and uh, the the only weather is up in the, the far northwest where we have some uh, showers and thunderstorms up in that northwest corner um, coming in from, from Western Australia there. Could see some uh, some rainfall, uh, heavier falls with, with that activity this afternoon and, and that continues for, for the next uh, couple of days up there uh, as well, not really progressing too far um, east until next week. So could see some severe thunderstorms in that northwest corner, but otherwise uh, dry and a warming trend into the, the weekend. So uh, looking at uh, temperatures getting up into the, the kind of high 20s to, to low 30s across the state uh, over the, the weekend there. Um, and uh, yeah, winds tending a bit more easterly as well, but still a bit of freshness uh, in them through the, the weekend. So uh, yeah, looking at some coastal wind warnings uh, persisting uh, with the afternoon sea breezes starting to, to pick up for a number of the coastal waters. Uh, so we have those warnings out for, for today uh, and Saturday, probably likely to see some uh, on Sunday uh, and maybe even into to Monday. So yeah, look, some fresh winds about coastal areas um, and yeah, temperatures warming up. So that weather is starting to, to move eastwards next week with the trough, uh, the, the weather up in the, the northwest of the state. So that trough moves into the, the far west of the state uh, on Monday and ahead of that uh, we start to see that moisture uh, connect up uh, to, to the north of the, the country and, and uh, those showers and thunderstorms extending uh, right across the, the pastoral districts uh, and down towards the, the west coast and, and air peninsula. Uh, could see some local heavier falls uh, in there but on Monday it's mostly confined uh, to, to areas across the, the pastorals and parts of the west coast so not quite getting down uh, into Air Peninsula in terms of the heavier activity on Monday uh, but on, on Tuesday uh, that trough does progress a little bit further eastwards so reaching around the Sejuna area uh, and, and we'll see those showers and thunderstorms start to pick up particularly across Air Peninsula uh, and stretching up into the, the northwest pastoral there um, so yeah, that's the, the day we could start to see some, some heavier falls move across uh, the agricultural area. It's still going to be a bit hit and miss at, at this stage, but uh, yeah, uh, out to, to the end of uh, Tuesday there, uh, we're probably looking at rainfall totals generally across the uh, uh, the north and west of the, the state, extending into some of those central areas of around uh, 2 to 15 millimetres. Um, but uh, with those thunderstorms, we, we, we will see some falls uh, in the northwest of the state and maybe down across that air peninsula Tuesday in that 15 to 30 millimetre range uh, and some really isolated falls with those thunderstorms maybe even up to 60 millimetres through that period so yeah it, it is you know some notable rainfall that we haven't had across the, the state for a number of weeks now it's really you know the season's kind of flipped in terms of that rainfall but this is the, the first um, you know time we're going to see some some notable rain in in the last few weeks so certainly uh, there'll be plenty of eyes on the, the sky for, for those who haven't completed the, uh, the harvest yet uh, and then as we move into the middle and latter part of next week you know we will see those showers and thunderstorms continue over central parts uh, on Wednesday and reaching the, the eastern border areas Wednesday uh, 
uh, as well, uh, and then starting to contract off uh, to the east, and, and totals really dropping off uh, Thursday and into to Friday with a uh, milder uh, south to southwesterly change uh, extending throughout Cassie. So, yeah, some notable rainfall on the way for, for Tuesday, Wednesday, but until then it's really confined to, to the north and west of the state. Thanks so much for that. John Fisher there with the latest in the weather. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio for more updates on that. There has been a flood watch and act, a prepare to evacuate issued for the low-lying areas between Maipalonga and Talem Bend, including Murray Bridge. There's a high risk of flooding in the lower-lying areas of Maipalonga to Talem Bend due to the rapidly rising river levels. So uh, do uh, start to activate your plan. If you remain in the area, you may become trapped uh, without water or power. So you you should prepare to evacuate uh, and uh, if the situation worsens it may not be safe to leave so uh, so do start following your emergency plan in the far west of New South Wales the weather's going to be sunny overnight it's falling to between 12 and 16 degrees but the daytime temperatures are going to reach the low 30s we are approaching 12:30 on the country hour You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hi, it's great to have you company today. I am Cassie Huff. Coming up, River Murray irrigators are staring down the barrel of a very stressful Christmas. Soon you'll meet a dairy farmer in a race against time to build a levee to protect his infrastructure as modelling shows the river will flow over the existing levee there around his place in the days leading up to Christmas. That's the most stressful part. We know it's coming. We just don't know when and how big. So we can plan to X amount. But it's just to the best guess. It's a lot of work taking place on his property at the moment. And you might have heard about the contaminated spinach. I'll bring you some details on what has actually caused that contamination soon. But first... Matt Coleman has the latest in news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Premier says it's heartbreaking to hear about the deaths of four more babies who were known to child protection authorities. The deaths deaths of the infants and children, which occurred several years ago, only came to light this week during a coronial inquest into the death of an 11-week-old. Premier Peter Malinowskis says he did not know about the deaths before now as they happened under a previous government. The mid-year budget review reveals significant spending on child protection and events across the state in the next four years. The state government has allocated more than $26 million to child protection that will help fund 33 full-time residential carers by 2026 after several damning reviews. Nearly $14 million has been tipped into buying and upgrading Adelaide 500 race facilities, while $12 million has been allocated to the major events fund. And a Watch and Act flood alert message has been put out for low-lying areas between Maipalonga to Talem Bend, including Murray Bridge. Emergency services say there's a high risk of flooding in the area due to rapid river level rises and that may threaten resident safety. Locals have been warned to prepare to evacuate. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that. Matt Coleman there with your news. He'll have more at one o'clock today. And as was mentioned there, this Flood Watch and Act message is for those low-lying areas between Maipalonga and Talem Bend and uh, 
I spoke with a farmer recently at my Palonga dairy farmer, David Smart, who is in a race against time to build a private levy to protect the dairy infrastructure there. The Smarts are building a three and a half metre high, two and a half metre wide clay levy to protect their automatic dairy from the rising flood border. And this flood could actually end up costing the Smarts about half a million dollars. We went away from the Rotary Dairy for many reasons, too much labour intensive and we found the robotics just had so many upsides in technology. And you've got 100 odd dairy cows here just waiting to get milked. They just walk themselves in and choose when they'd like to be milked by the looks of things. Yeah, pretty much and they've all pretty much got their own robot. (laughs) Do they have a favourite robot? They certainly do. They are probably blissfully unaware of all the activity, though, that's going on around them at the moment. When you look out across your dairy flats here, you can see some um, fodder paddocks, some green fodder paddocks that have obviously been sown. And then right in the distance, you can see the River Murray, or at least the tree line where the River Murray is. Right now, it's where it's supposed to be. But the concern is that that may not be the case in a week's time. How high is the levee? that normally protects your property from the river? I think it's about 2.4 to 2.6 metres from sea level, but that's equivalent to 185 gigalitres per day flow. But I think it's going to come well above that. As a result, you are now building a levee here on your property. What does building a levee entail? Uh, Carting in a lot of um, clay, like digging it out of pit, carting it in, levelling it out, getting it to the right heights, surveying it and compacting it, just make sure it's all right. Why is it that you're going to this trouble? Because this, this levee, that it, lo- it looks like it could be a, a kilometre or so of, of clay that you've got there. Well, with robotic dairy, we can't really pick it up and just shift it. All the electronics in there, if they get water in them, it's goodbye. And no insurance covers them. So we've got not much other choice. How expensive do you think this is going to be to put in a levy this big on your property? I think in the ballpark of 120 to 150 grand. It's about a kilometre long, um, three and a half metres high, two and a half metres wide at the top. Other people are going about it in a different way. Some people are even considering selling their stock. Why would someone be thinking that drastically that they might have to do that? Well, just to manage to get through if they're selling their stock they're cutting their numbers down to make things more workable. Um, we're too committed, we can't really do that. Um, we've got to keep punching along. Now when you look out across these river flats here, you can see that um, once it's on this side of that levee down by the river, it's going to take a long time for that water to go away. How long is it going to take for the water that was spread out across the floodplains here to make its way through the system? If it only comes over the top, we can probably be pumped out within three to four months. If it breaches the levee bank, it's going to be 12 months because we'll have to wait for the, levee, the river to actually drop back to level so we can repair the bank and then pump it out. But we're looking at pro- probably 18 months before we can access pasture again. 18 months? That means you're going to have to feed your stock for 18 months? That's correct. It's probably not the ideal year to be doing it. Um, high feed prices not much feed around due to the season that we've had yeah but it's just something you got got to do we'll have to relaser the whole farm redig all the drainage channels 
put all the irrigation infrastructure back in. So that's going to cost us doing the work ourselves about another half million dollars. And on top of that, you could also be running a generator for how long as well? Well, it depends how long we're cut off the power. It could be three, four, six, twelve months. How would you describe this period of waiting, not knowing what the river is actually going to do? That's the most stressful part. We know it's coming. We just don't know when and how big. So we can plan to X amount, but it's just to the best guess. How much country do you think will go underwater? Uh, we've got 250 hectares of river flats that we'll lose, and then the neighbour with the buffalo, I think he's got about 150 hectares. And then there's a beef farmer down a bit further. I think he's got about 150 hectares as well. And how is everyone coping? I'm not sure. We've got a really strong community here with strong community leaders. They're just outstanding. But as far as neighbours, we haven't really had time to do anything, trying to get our levy sorted. When are you actually expecting the uh, main peak to affect you? Uh could be on the 21st December, so a week away, or it could be um, early January. Did you ever think you'd have to build a levee? Not in my wildest dreams. You thought that levee down there would do the job? Yep, most definitely. And you look out there now, what are you thinking? It's just surreal to be able to think it's going to be full of water in two to three weeks' time. How long will you keep this levy for? It's a permanent fixture. Forever? Yep. Well, we've carved it all in here now. Why move it? It's, it's not going to affect anything being here, so why move it? Could spend another $200,000 pulling it out. Permanent reminder to this extraordinary situation. That was dairy farmer David Smart speaking there. And it could be a pretty difficult Christmas for people like the Smarts who live along the River Murray this year. Hopefully those levies do their job. They're certainly putting a lot of effort into making sure that they can protect the very expensive uh, infrastructure that they have there with their their dairy, their automatic dairy. And uh, as I have mentioned and was mentioned in the news, a flood watch and act message is now uh, in place for low-lying areas between Maipalonga to Talem Bend, including Murray Bridge, because there is a high risk of flooding in the low-lying areas between Maipalonga and Talem Bend due to the rapid river level rises. So uh, you need to be looking at your emergency plan and preparing your family and home for flooding um, and the SES assistance number is 132500. Obviously, if the matter is life-threatening, you contact 000, but for SES assistance, contact 132500 um, because uh, uh, it's it can be quite dangerous uh, in this situation. If you are unable to find alternative accommodation, an emergency relief centre is open at the Manham Football Club and uh, some support and emergency accommodation can be arranged there. So uh, do start thinking about your plans if you do live in those low-lying areas between Maipalonga and Talem Bend. Now, a story that has uh, burst onto the scene today is uh, about this contaminated spinach, a spinach grower whose product has caused at least nine people across Sydney to fall sick, believes it may have been contaminated with the poisonous thornapple wheat. People are being advised to throw out any Rivera Farms 
branded spinach sold through retailer Costco with an expiry date of December 16, so an expiry date of today, and it has to have been bought through Costco. Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano spoke to the grower this morning and says they are horrified about the contamination. Oh, obviously having a terrible day. This is kind of the worst nightmare um, for a grower to, to have um, some kind of food safety recall that you need to do on your farm. But I would say that it, you know, it's very much a demonstration of how the food safety uh, processes that are put in place actually work. So the grower's been notified and now just working through the process of elimination to work out exactly uh, what the contaminant is. And the grower suspects that it was a weed? Yeah, the grower, because you're able to identify exactly where um, a particular product comes uh, from in your paddocks, they've gone back to where that the, the batch that has created the issues uh, was picked from, and they've identified a, a weed that is in you know at larger numbers than what they would ordinarily expect, um, and that's on the back of you know these weather conditions that we've been having. They've never had that particular issue before, but they do suspect at this point in time that it's a weed that's um, that's caused the problems. Having said that, they've of course got to go through the whole process of elimination because it may not be what they suspect it is, and all of that testing is occurring at the moment. Can you say at this stage what that suspected weed is? The grower suspects that it might be a thorn apple, um, which is really quite odd. Uh, that That's what they're thinking at the moment. But having said it, like I said, they've got to go through and do all of the plant biosecurity testing. They've got to do chemical contamination testing, and that's got to be coupled with both the retained samples um, and testing those, uh, testing the recalled product, and, of course, the reports back from the health departments that will be doing the toxicology reports from a health perspective um, with the people um, who have become ill. And really serious health effects. The, the symptoms reported by the health authorities, uh, hallucinations, delirium, rapid heartbeat, blurred vision, pretty pretty scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's why these things need to be taken seriously, which is why the grower has done both a trade recall and a retail level recall of all the product um, that's out there. And they have absolutely identified what batch um, that they believe that it's come from. So all of that product um, has, of course, been removed from the shelves and, and trying to contact um, as many customers as possible to, to let them know to re- return the product. Is it common with leafy greens, micro greens, spinach for uh, weed fragments to, to make their way into the final product? Oh, I guess, you know, we've all had, um, you know, a little piece of grass turn up in our mixed leaves bag at some point in time. I mean, it's, a, you know, the way that it's harvested. But generally, these things are identified somewhere along the process. But, if you know, I, I can't comment as to exactly how much there has been um, as a contamination in the product because I haven't seen it. Um, and the grower will now need to put in place extra processes to ensure that this doesn't happen again once it is identified, of course, that that ha- is what has actually led to the problem. You know, that particular farmer is a notable um, farmer who has been farming for generations on that land and never had that kind of problem before. So, you know, it, it is a demonstration that there's a process that works, that it's been picked up so quickly and will enable them to eliminate the, um, the risk moving forward. And on that point about the reputability of the grower, I mean, it must be horrifying or it must have been horrifying when they learnt what was happening. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I spoke with him this morning and he is he's a reputable grower. Not only that, you know, he puts a lot of effort into advocacy and industry 
um, you know, different product lines, all of those things. And, you know, he just said, oh, can you just, I said, what can we do to help? And he said, oh, my God, if you could just make all of this go away because it really is a grower's worst nightmare to think that a product that's out there is um, causing harm to people and wanting to do everything possible to ensure that you eliminate that um, that problem straight away and then, of course, making sure your process is the right moving forward. Have you ever heard of anything like this ever happening before? Well, I mean, we know that we've had contaminations in the past, like different chemical contaminations or, uh, you know, bacteria loads that have gotten too high and we've seen those sort of product recalls before. I mean, this one, you know, even surprised me. I thought, geez, you know, what weed if, if it is a weed? But again, until we go through all of that testing process, at this point it's just speculating that it's that weed and that's the grower, of course, wanting to get on top of the problem, you know, as soon as possible. Like I said, that, that production of that product has stopped on the farm. There'll be no further um, distribution of the product. Everything's being recalled. All of that testing needs to happen so that everybody can be sure that they know what the problem is and then work out what to do to, um, to remove the problem and, of course, you know, remove that product and, and any further risk that might be uh, presented to the community by distributing further product, which the grower, of course, is absolutely not wanting to do. Mm, and it's understood at this stage that it is isolated to those one kilogram tubs of spinach, branded Riviera Farms, sold through Costco, and as you said, with the best before date, December 16. Uh, so at, at this stage, isolated to those products. Uh, could it be more widespread or could the same or a related issue emerge from other farms? Again, depending on what the exact contaminant is, we're, we're all speculating at this point in time. I bet that there's a lot of growers uh, probably in that region, you know, out there checking today and the growers will support each other to make sure that this particular weed, if it, if it does turn out to be this weed, that is going to be a risk that's going to be um, managed or, you know, have to be eliminated from the supply chain altogether. Um, it was the one kilo packs, as you said, and some of the 350 gram bags also, but through the same retailers of, of Costco um, in New South Wales and everything else is being recalled at this point in time. So hopefully the problem has been nipped in the bud at this point um, and then actually doing that analysis is what we've got to turn our focus to. Just finally, Emma, I guess we do see, I mean, we saw it happen with the needles in strawberries, but when a particular product has a, a negative news story that that can affect sales and the popularity of that product more broadly, uh, what would you say in relation to that to consumers? Yeah, there would be a concern and that does happen, but it, it is a shame when we see, you know, products that are completely safe um, not being purchased and it can have such a big impact on growers, um, you know, other growers. And I would just say that this is this is a demonstration of how the food safety system works um, and any of those pro- problems would have been picked up. So the answer is not to stop buying spinach or any other leafy products at this point in time because we have, you know, identified where that problem is coming from. You know, the, the, the system has identified it um, and we need to understand that in Australia we've got one of the best food safety systems in the world which is why we don't have people you know always horrifically sick and these incidents are always very isolated um, and take it under control very very quickly. Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano speaking with Angus Verley there. It is 13 minutes to one. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill to the Air Peninsula now where aquaculture students at Port Lincoln High School have had success in getting their fish to spawn. After a number of attempts over the years, this is the first time the class has got its barramundi broodstock to drop eggs and while the eggs didn't survive, aquaculture teacher Chris McGowan says it's an important step in the barramundi program. It's the first year that we actually got the broodstock barramundi uh, and they're about 
11 years old now and they actually spawn. We had two females, they both dropped their eggs, so they probably produced about 2 million eggs. We tried to get them to hatch, but uh, weren't successful in that, but we got the first stage where to actually get them to spawn is one of the hardest. So that took almost a term and a half to get them up ready to spawn and, and get them going. So my year 12 class were awesome this year, going through that process and actually doing it. So it was, it was pretty exciting, actually, to, to do that. So maybe next year um, we'll, we'll get the next process and get them to larval size and get them to hatch. So see how we go with that. Have you tried this before? Uh, yes, yeah, we, we've tried it over the last probably three or four years, uh, tried the spawning cycle. But uh, this year we tried something a bit different and we actually put an artificial hormone through them and we had to inject them. Uh, and we only inject the females, and so we had to find out males and females and the, the gender of the fish. And we injected them, and, uh, and that's, that was the success of it. So the hormone is, is one of the major ingredients to, for successful spawning. Yeah. What was the response from the students when they saw the eggs had been dropped? Oh, they were stoked. I, I, I gave them no hope that that would actually happen, but because of previous years, we, we've tried and tried and, and nothing happened, but uh, this year was amazing how it was. It was pretty exciting to, to get them all, so they were, they were wrapped, yeah, yeah. So if you can get this process successful into the future, what could it mean for the, the program here at the school? I think, I think it's an important side to, uh, for students uh, to see when a fish spawns and how to what, the next level after that and how difficult it is to actually get them through larval stage and into fingling stage and the live feed stage so it'll, it'll just bring a whole different side of, of aquaculture into it and uh, great learning for the year 12s for the hands on to to try and keep young fish alive put it that way yeah because usually you'd get the fingerlings in is that how it works yeah, so we get them in at about probably about 20 mil uh, in length and um, grow them out normally to six, 600 to 600 grams. So, but even if we're spawning fish with these, we're still going to have trouble recruiting from our fish that we've got here just through the processes is so uh, complicated, put it that way. And, and, the t- and it's very time-consuming. So, so we'll probably still keep on buying the fish in from Adelaide, uh, and that's probably 1,000 to 1,500 uh, little finglings we get, and we grow them out. See how that goes, yeah. Port Lincoln High School aquaculture teacher Chris McGowan. Max Lowby and Ryan Wolford were two of the Year 12 students involved with the Barramundi broodstock and preparing them to drop eggs. Max says despite the eggs not surviving, it was great to see that they had done something that no one else at the school had done before. Yeah, over the year we spent a fair while doing the, a lot of water quality testing and kind of making sure that that was all up to standard to really get the eggs ready to drop. That was all your temperature and your pH testing and making sure all the flow rates was up to standard to really make sure that the eggs were ready to drop. This year we had the implementation of the hormones that we gave the fish, so injected them with natural hormones that allowed the fish to drop the eggs. Um, I just gave it a whole lot, whole lot more of a positive side, I suppose. So by getting the fish to drop the eggs, what, what's the idea behind that process? I suppose for the students to kind of show how to drop the eggs but then to kind of take that information that they've learnt and use it in different areas of the workforce that they may be going into. That's a big goal for Mr McGowan, I suppose, to try and make a sustainable fisheries down here. 
with aquaculture. So we've we've seen that with Yumba Aquaculture. They're trying new things and the Kingfish Farm up at Arno Bay. So just trying to get that sustainable fisheries kind of happening just so it's ready for the future. And Ryan, I'll come to you. What do you enjoy about being involved with the Barramundi at the school? Uh, just learning about all the different processes that we have to go through with like breeding and feeding and stuff like that. Yeah, it's really fun. And what was the reaction like in the class when you, you'd learnt that the um, barramundi had dropped their eggs? Uh, it was pretty, everyone was pretty excited, pretty hyped. Yeah. Ryan and I were actually on the plane to Adelaide and we got the message and we kind of both looked at each other on a plane we're like, we'd actually done it. Like, we're very pumped. And so what happened after they dropped their eggs? It, for people that might not know about, about fish, um, this, does this happen in the water and do you collect them after that? What's the process after? Um, the process after the eggs have dropped is a very difficult process just because there's a whole lot of other parameters that need to be assessed and done to keep them alive, to get them to your small fingling stage. And your fingling stage is when they get to a centimetre or two small when they get on that artificial or the normal food. But yeah, from there we we did. I think we did try to keep some alive, but unfortunately we just didn't have the the uh, stuff or the technology and stuff needed to keep them alive. But yeah, it should be interesting over the next few years if we do get that sort of technology and stuff to try and keep them alive. But yeah, no, it was cool. Paul Lincoln High School students Max Loby and Ryan Wolford speaking there and. Uh, Sounds like they've had a lot of success. It'd be good to see if they can actually make something from these eggs, perhaps get them to actually survive. We'll keep following that. Finally today, though, well, when you buy household products, you trust that the item is exactly what it says on the tin or in the instance of wine, what it says on the bottle. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. Food fraud has been a big issue for some time. And Jeffrey Grosset is the owner of the Clare Valley's Grosset Wines. And he's developed a chip in a screw cap to combat the problem of wine fraud. He explains the product to Demetria Panagiotaris. We've designed it around the traditional screw cap, which simply now has a chip inserted just underneath the top of the cap. And with any smartphone in the world, you can hold your smartphone over the top of the cap and it will confirm what the wine is and as much detail as the winemaker wants to put in. That's, you know, when it was bottled, where it's from, essentially confirming that it is what it says it is. And as well as that, because it has a sensor down the side of the cap, it can confirm that it hasn't been opened. And so all of that can be done to reassure the integrity of the wine that uh, you're about to buy or you're about to open. And what is the need for a product like this? Why is wine authenticity and integrity so important to consumers? Yeah, well, I guess we're we're all becoming more and more aware now of the need for integrity from anything from, you know, what we eat, fruit and veg, meat, uh, milk. And really, that's because there's more than significant amount of faking, as one of Trump's terms would be, you know, fake wine. There's more fraud in wine than probably ever before. And so what we want to do is to ensure that wine made in Australia in particular, that's sealed usually almost always with a screw cap, can reassure people by having this little chip on the top that um, it is actually what it says and, um, and everything is legitimate about it. And probably the amount of fraud that's occurring, not just with Australian wine, but everywhere, is quite significant and probably a lot higher than people realise. 
So, how common is wine fraud in Australia and what does that mean for Aussie consumers? I guess we're fortunate in Australia because one of the other benefits of Screwcap, other than uh, the fact that every bottle will be the same, whereas under cork they'll vary, they are harder to fake the wine. I mean, it's it's more difficult, but not impossible. And so to me, the benefit is once I think more people realise that fraud's occurring on an international scale, we'd like to take that one step further and say before it becomes an issue, put a chip uh, in the cap and allow people to check and see, reassure them that, that it's legitimate. And of course, the winemaker, there are other marketing benefits too. I mean, the winemaker can tell that consumer that uh, it was picked on a certain day, um, but also that it can go to any part of a website that has the winemaker introducing the wine and just telling them, you know, what it is, whatever the whatever the winemaker wants. So there's an opportunity to connect with the consumer, reassuring them that it's legitimate, but at the same time telling them a little bit about the wine to make it more personal. So that's really that's really what we can do with this, and at a very low cost. You're only talking about cents, not dollars. And in a way, we're trying to get in and get people used to just taking out the phone and checking to see that it's uh, what it says it is and it hasn't been opened. Jeffrey Grosset, owner and founder of Clare Valley's Grosset Wines. Travis Fuller, general manager of Killacanoon Wines, also located in the Clare Valley, is working on trialling the new NCL technology. He shares how he thinks this product will benefit the wine industry. It's a pretty exciting project. I think, you know, as the world revolves these days, is just compliance. I mean, you, you, if you say something on a label, you need to be able to prove that it's true. So if it's Clare Valley Riesling, you know, how do I know as a consumer or as a department when I'm exporting these wines that it is actually Clare Valley Riesling? And is wine fraud an issue that's on the rise or is it something relatively new? What's your understanding of wine fraud? Oh, I, I, <laughs> it's a big topic. I, I think uh, it's been around for, for decades. There's no doubt that some of the most famous wines in the world tend to find that there are a lot more wines on the market than actually were ever produced. So you go, well, you know, what what is what is it that I'm actually buying? What's in the bottle? You know, the temptation to to modify or to copy brands and products and wines is is high. So uh, I think it's. It's pretty rife. I think that many companies, bigger companies, have tried to crack down on it. And it's technology like the blockchain technology and what they're putting into these uh, screw caps that actually you know, will give you a lot more confidence uh, and allow you to almost guarantee that, that the product that you've got in the bottle is indeed the real thing. And for us, you could get to the point now with this technology that when somebody purchases your wine in a, you know, in a store in Wimbledon in the UK, well, you know when they've opened it and you know that it's been opened in that market. You can start to see where your, where your product is actually being consumed. Pretty exciting stuff. Travis Fuller, General Manager of Kilikanoon Wines, ending that report by Dimitri Panagiotaris, the thoughts of things that are being done to uh, combat uh, food fraud and issues around that so big works out for them that's all we have time for but deb tribe happy friday happy friday to you cass what's coming up this afternoon last seat in the afternoons chair and so we're going to take a look back at the lunchtime legends of 2022 and count down the top 10 wonder if you can guess what number one is and with music also 
John Keneally's going to join me and we're going to look at some of the musicians that we lost in 2022, but their legacy, of course, lives on in their music. So we'll listen to a bit of that. It's not quite 2016 levels, but there were quite a lot of people we lost this year. Yes, 2016, definitely a black year for musicians. Yeah. More to come on your ABC local radio. It's coming up to one o'clock, though, almost time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.